We're going to be in a couple of different scriptures this morning, um, but I suppose I suppose uh, Romans chapter one is a good place to start. So go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter one, and we'll be in the book of Isaiah. We'll also be in the book of Amos this morning. The withdrawal of God's presence is hardly noticeable, but once he's absent, it's the only thing you notice. Even the most ungodly heathen, though they might not be able to put their finger on what exactly is wrong, can tell you that something's wrong when God isn't anywhere to be found. When God's absent, there's no respite from sin. Leaders are embroiled in unrighteousness. Oppression is rampant. Good is anything but. Common sense is thrown out by those in power. Justice is perverted. And to quote Proverbs 29.2, when the wicked rule, the people groan. In short, life does not work when God is nowhere to be found. Now, of course, with our heads, we know God isn't absent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But when God is absent, when he's not sensible, when we can't feel his presence, when we can't see him working, when we don't know what he's doing, when his protection and his guiding hand are removed, It feels like we're a million miles away from him. Men often ask the question, where is God when? And they usually follow it uh, with some sort of indication of bad circumstance. When you get devastating news or some sort of tragedy happens. Where is God when loss is overwhelming, when disasters strike? They seek God's presence in what they think are their darkest hours. But the hours when darkest falls thickest are not just those in which bad things happen. No, true darkness presides when men totally reject God. That is when the darkness is so thick you can feel it. God is no longer welcome, so he removes his hand removes his spirit and just lets men have it their way. That's the idea behind Romans chapter 1. Men are so wicked, so vile, that they are past the point of correction. Paul puts it this way in verse 21. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Put it in a popular expression, God just simply lets them follow their hearts. 
You want it? Have at it. Three times in this same, in this same chapter, Paul says that God gave them up to their passions and desires. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He gives them up. Because they rejected him. Not only do they engage in evil, but they promote it. Verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When that happens, God leaves. He's not welcome. And the effects are devastating. People cry out in agony under brutal mistreatment. Confucian reigns and truth cowers into the fringes of society. People are forced to hide their thoughts for fear of exposure and condemnation. Forgiveness is vacated as injustice recycles old faults with horrific tenacity. Fundamental elements, truth and goodness, vanish. I mean, how can they be somewhere where their source isn't? The depravity of man is on full display and it demands allegiance. When it gets this bad, when God has removed his protection and blessings on a culture, there is only one real option, only one hope for a better tomorrow. We beg God to act, to do something, to do anything. Israel found itself in such a state. They had rejected God had wandered off the path of righteousness. In fact, uh, when the prophet Isaiah is writing his words, is prophesying his prophecies, it is years before the northern kingdom would get captured and a couple of centuries before the southern kingdom would. But yet, he looks ahead to that time and voices a cry of desperation. He sees a time when the temple would be trampled. God's people would no longer be ruled by him, but by foreign invaders. He recognizes that they deserve such punishment. After all, their righteousness is as filthy rags and their sins have accrued for ages. And it's in that brokenness that Isaiah voices this cry of desperation. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, oh, short little word.
That's not a polite request. Many a man has requested God's presence as though they were inviting him to a wedding. They get fancy invitations with all sorts of elegant fonts and gold foil inside the envelopes. They use ornate language with ostentatious decorum. That, that word ostentatious sounds ostentatious. They may even be as bold to ask God to RSVP for him to come to their revival services. That's not how Isaiah approaches God, is it? In fact, I think there's a misprint. I don't know if all Bibles do this, but I really think there should be an exclamation point right after that O. Because there's no way to say O without feeling it deep down in the depths of your soul. This is desperation. This is a man with no other hope than for the eternal God to work on behalf of him and on behalf of his people. Oh, is abject need that doesn't have a lexicon and doesn't even look for words to describe how it feels. It's a desperation that, that you feel when you yearn so much for something that you feel you have to get it or you're going to die. Oh, is so desperate so reckless it bypasses manners and it goes straight to the heart of the matter God please come and we call out to God we pray for revival but oftentimes it goes something like this we ask God we say God we're going to have revival in just a few weeks, we're going to have our homecoming service. This would be a great time for revival, God. So God, we're going to do some revival. So we want you to come and bless our revival. We want you to come and, and let us experience you in our revival. And we plan our services. We invite dynamic speakers and wonderful music groups. We try to create an atmosphere conducive for God to work. We, we blanket neighborhoods, inviting folks to come. Maybe even praying for them as we go. But somehow in our desperation, even when we're completely sincere, He still doesn't seem to show up. Maybe one or two people rededicate their life. Maybe someone says, I thought I was saved when I was six, and now I'm 60. And we think, oh, then we've had revival, right? But then it just dies. A week, a month, a year, and the baptism's just as dry as it was before. Our hearts are just as dry as they were before. And it's really not any wonder. Because even though we've done all of these things and we've walked through all these steps and we think that we've done something good, what we've really done is rejected God. Because we don't really yearn for Him. We only yearn for His work. We only yearn for Him to do something that we can see. We only yearn for more seats in the pews. We only yearn for more money in the offering plate. We only yearn for, for the outward appearance of growth and health and vitality. We don't really want God. See, because in reality, we're the people in Romans 1 that have rejected 
God. Sometimes we beg, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and God says, you really want me to come? And I almost think that he answers in the words of another prophet. Amos wasn't a prophet until he was. He was a shepherd. In fact, he even says, I'm not even a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. But at one point, he goes on to say, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Even this shepherd recognized when God speaks, he has to declare it. And sometimes I think, when we are at that plot spot where we think that we want God and, and, and we do all these things and we try, try to get this revival and it doesn't seem to happen, God doesn't seem to show up, we look at God and say, what's the problem? What's the matter? Why won't you come? And God answers with Amos 3.3. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? If we want to know why the revival is so long delayed, I think we find it here. Y'all, we can't walk with God if we don't agree with Him. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They've just bitten the forbidden fruit. They are ashamed. Their eyes are open. And they have shame. So much shame that they grab the closest thing to them to cover up their shame. Fig leaves. They're scared. They are seeing fear for the first time. Feeling guilt for the first time. They're no longer innocent. And they know it. Boy, do they know it. It's hitting them like a ton of bricks. And now you hear God coming into the garden. Every evening He had come into the garden to walk with them. now they're scared out of their minds what are we going to do what is he going to do they're guilty they deserve God's wrath it must have been overwhelming the fear they were feeling so they hid they cower away walking with God would be a death sentence for them and so they just try to avoid his presence. And you know, we've been hiding from God ever since. Haven't we? Even, even though we know Jesus, even though we have now become children of God through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, even though we've trusted Christ with our lives, with our eternities, even now, we still hide from God. Oh, we don't face condemnation. But we'd still try to tuck it away and hide it into the deepest corners of our hearts. We're so silly. We think we can walk with God while we're walking with the world. But God says, how can we walk together if we're not even going the same way? You want to know what prevents revival? 
That's what prevents revival. It's not just that we sin sometimes. It's that we continue in sin. It's that we don't stop it. That we don't repent of it. That we don't turn away from it. You really want to know what causes us to not have revival? It's because we refuse to turn away from our sins. We do. It's not about them out there. You can't revive what ain't vibed. It starts with us. We don't agree with God that we're all that bad. I mean, after all, our sins aren't as bad as theirs. I mean, you know, look what they're doing. They're, they're chopping up body parts and having kids take drugs that sterilizes them for life because they feel a certain way. Look at what they're doing. They're murdering babies in the womb. Look at what they're doing. They're calling all kinds of grotesque and terrible things good. They're lying. They're cheating. They're stealing. They're doing all sorts of bad things. Our sins aren't that bad. Maybe every now and then i got a thought problem. Maybe every now and then I have a little thing here or a little thing there. But it's nowhere near what they've got. And so we just excuse our sins. You know, I don't really like doing it anyway. They love what they're doing. They're a lot worse off than me. But God will have none of it. None of it. God says, I didn't... I didn't call you to be better than them. I called you to repent. He asks us to agree with him that though our that our skin, sins are as scarlet, that our righteousness is filthy rags, that our gains are total losses compared to Christ. Until we value God more than we value our own sins. Revival will be nothing more than a distant memory or a fairy tale of long, long ago and far, far away. We ask God to come near, but our own actions tell Him to stay away. That's what prevents revival. Look back at Isaiah 64 again. I only got to the first word. Let me, let me go a little bit further. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The prophet is not just pleading for God to be there. He's pleading for God to come. But he's also pleading that God would rend the heavens and come. He doesn't just want God to enter stage left. He wants God to rip apart the skies if He has to, to come. And I'm going to tell you something. Every time God comes, it will require rending. Something has to be torn up. Something has to be completely thrown away. Something has to be gotten out of the way before God can come. And oftentimes, that rending has to occur within my heart and within your heart. God doesn't just need to rend the heavens. He needs to rend my sins. There's no easy way for God to come. No path of God's arrival 
doesn't have rending in the process. When God comes, something has to be changed. If we're to meet with God, that something is us. Because God's perfect. He doesn't change. He doesn't need to. We do. I'm calling this sermon the rules of revival. And and the whole series is going to kind of be five rules, five things that I think will help us not not. These things aren't like checklists that you check them each off and then uh, that automatically means revival happens. But these are five things that I think will put us in the right place for God to move. Here's number one. Revival comes when God's people seek Him in humbled repentance. Let me say that again. Revival comes when God's people Seek him in humbled repentance. I know it's not on the screen. Revival comes when God's people seek him in humbled repentance. It is God's choice when revival starts. It's not ours. I mean, it's his spirit. It's his movement. It's his prerogative. Just like saving us is his prerogative in the first place, so is God reviving our hearts. But scriptures show us, and I believe experience confirms, that when God sends his spirit, he always does so upon the humble and contrite. I was telling the boys earlier today about Psalm 51. One of my favorite passages. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and lead me in life everlasting. One of the reasons I love that psalm so much is because we often find ourselves needing it. I find myself broken before God in my sins. And the only thing I can do, the only thing I can do is just say, God, help me. And this psalm just just speaks directly into me. But I want you to hear what he says next. Not all these verses are on the screen. Um, but, But listen to verses 13 and following. Then, when he comes before God in humble submission, then, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. He recognizes that he is not alone. That he is not the only one transgressing God's law. That he is not the only one who needs God to clean him up. And so he says, when you do that for me, now I'll be able to be used by you so that others can come to know you. So that others can learn your ways. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here it is, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We can't force God to revive our hearts. But when we're broken and repentant, well, let me put it this way. Carrie took the kids to Ufala. The band was playing in the football game in Ufala. James is in the band, so Carrie took all the kids to the game to chaperone the band and to I don't know how much chaperoning she was able to do with the band because she was pretty much tied up with our kids I'm sure but in Ufala there's a place called the Donut King right so call that okay the Donut King now we have donuts here okay and our donuts are pretty good like we've got donut we've got donuts to lighten in uh over there in Millbrook, we've got Donut Heaven over here in Prattville. I mean, we've got plenty of places for donuts, okay? But Donut King has something they don't have. Donut King has honey buns. And boy, are they honey buns. She brought the box in this morning. And she gave me a honey bun from Donut King. And it didn't matter that she got it yesterday and brought it here. That didn't matter. It's still wonderful. As much pleasure as I take in those honey buns, I think God takes so much more in our broken repentance I think God sees us in that shape and his heart burns for us. When a baby's crying and a mother hears it, her blood pressure skyrockets. It's natural. Baby's crying. Father's blood pressure skyrockets too. Happens to, to, to men and women. Even if it's not your baby, it still happens. But man, when it's your baby, your heart goes out to that kid. Now, it's a little different at 3 a.m. when he's been crying for the last several hours and he, can't, he won't go to sleep. <laughs> your, your heart starts to run out of patience at that point, right? God hears our broken repentance. God sees us humbled before him and his heart goes out to us. And it draws him to respond. Now, we can't force God to bring revival. But boy, we can boy, we can sure we can sure ask him better than we have been. This morning, it's open every Sunday, but I, I, I want to reiterate, the altar's open. 
when we play this invitation hymn, the altar is going to be open. Maybe you, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to come before God in brokenness and tell Him, God, I am a sinner. And I know you have saved me from my sins, but Father, I continue in them and I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to live without your presence. I don't want to be so against you. Maybe maybe you've never even asked for God's forgiveness. You've walked an aisle, you've prayed a prayer, you've taken a bath, but you haven't really asked God to be your Lord. I'll be down here at the front. I'll be glad to help you do that. But even if you have, there's some sins you need to confess. Or maybe, maybe you have confessed those sins before God and you have been earnestly seeking Him, but you know some folks that God needs to do the work into. The altar's open. Whatever it is that God is doing, I promise you two things. He wants to send His Spirit. But He won't do so until we're broken before Him. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing. And it'll be time for you to respond. Father, You do Your work. We know that except You be drawing us, we wouldn't want to come to you. Except your spirit be working in us already that we wouldn't respond in obedience. So Father, I just pray that you would do your work and that we would respond in the way that brings you glory. In this time, you lead us to the foot of your cross to repent of sin and to follow you. This is your time, Lord. Bless it. In Christ's name, amen.